0: Thank you. You may be seated. We are blessed this morning. I didn't say this when, uh, in the morning introductions, but we are blessed this morning to have Archdeacon Andrew Brashier. He's a priest um, under the jurisdiction of armed forces and chaplaincy. He's a prison chaplain. He's a father. He's the rector at Good Shepherd Anglican Church in Pelham, and he's also a lawyer, so he doesn't have much going on. Uh <laughs> But we have the joy of hearing him come and preach God's holy word to us today, to the glory of God the Father. Archdeacon Andrew will hear you gladly now. Thank you, Deacon Josiah, for that gracious introduction. The Lord be with you. Let us begin with prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have graced us and gifted us with your holy word. Lord, those words that have been read over us, from the old to the new the psalter to your gospel. Let them, Lord, truly penetrate our hard hearts, plant the seeds of your gospel within them, and give us growth, O Lord, so that we may grow into you. And united to you, O Lord, we may bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit that you are calling us to walk in. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen. It's a joy and it's an honor to be here, to preach and to celebrate with you today. And many of you probably do not know me, but I actually became an Anglican in this parish in Christ the King when it was but a young, brand-new mission that was meeting on the campus of Sanford University. As a matter of fact, two out of three of my children were baptized here. Now, don't worry, my third child was also baptized. But he was baptized over at Church of the Good Shepherd, where I serve rector just a few minutes down the road in Pelham. Now, your founding rector... Father Lyle Dorsett, he's a man who I actually consider my spiritual mentor. In fact, I'm wearing today a chasuble that he wore many times while celebrating and preaching here in this parish. So when I received the call from your senior warden that Father Michael was unfortunately ill and was not able to make it today, I didn't hesitate to say yes. Of course, he only told me after I said yes that I was the fourth person that he called. (laughs) Now, you're kind of stuck with me today, and when I previously delivered a sermon that was on today's gospel reading, I entitled it on Raising Expectations. But I think this sermon may need to be entitled Lower Your Expectations. (laughs) But let's bear together, and let's grin and bear together. We go into the gospel reading, the gospel of St. Matthew in chapter 22, beginning in verse 15. Now, Today, we're finding Jesus at the beginning of a critical dialogue and an inquisition, an inquisition that he faces from the three main power groups of Judaism. And those three groups are the Herodians, who are named after the puppet king Herod, whose family was placed into power by Rome. King Herod, in other words, is an imposter. He does not descend from the line of the true king, King David, the Herodians, they could care less about the details of, of God's revelation in the scriptures. They're more concerned about protecting their power. Now, the second group are the Sadducees. They control the Sanhedrin. You may think, what is that? What is the Sanhedrin? That's the ruling council of the Jewish religion at the time. And as my old Baptist preacher once told me before I became Anglican, the Sadducees, well, they didn't believe in the resurrection, so they were sad, you see. I had to get the dad joke out early. Now, look, you'll hear more about the Sadducees. I want you to remember them in the coming weeks as you dive further into Matthew 22. They will pop back up. Now, the third group that we're going to talk about today are the Pharisees. Now, perhaps the most well-known opponents of Jesus. They actually have very little in common, if at all, with the Herodians. You see, the Sadducees, the Herodians, and the Pharisees, all have different opinions of each other and different opinions about the kingdom of God and how it's going to look like. The Herodians and the Sadducees, they've got this vested interest. I want you to remember this. Herodians and Sadducees have a vested interest in keeping things the way they are. Keep the peace with Rome. You see, the Herodians are holding on to power because of Rome. And the Sadducees, they're ruling the religious council. They believe that all there is to this life is what they see before them, the material world, because they disbelieve in the resurrection. But the Pharisees, they're strict adherence to the Torah, to the law of God, to what we now call the Old Testament. The Pharisees, they believe in the promise of the coming Messiah, the Christ. They look forward to the resurrection of the dead. Although we see them as opponents a lot in scriptures, they actually have more in common than what you would initially think, although they get a lot of things wrong, as we'll see in today's scripture. However, their chief problem, and one of the chief complaints that Christ makes to them, is that the commandments of God, they take out of context. They add man-made laws to the law of God. Out of their zealous desire to observe the law of God, they miss the spirit of God's commands. Now, each of these three groups, the Herodians, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, they're going to take a stab at trying to entrap Jesus all throughout chapter 22. All while Jesus, by the way, is in the temple of God. And each one of these groups will be sorely disappointed when Jesus upstages them. Now, the first attack, the one that we're diving into today's gospel lesson, is a joint attack against Jesus, and it comes from the Herodians and the Pharisees. Remember, these are two unlikely allies. This is not who you would expect to see together. Because one represents compromising with that Gentile, pagan, Roman empire, the Herodians. The other group, the Pharisees, well, they represent a a zealous demand for strict Torah observance. And overthrowing the false kings like Herod, the false kings like Roman Caesar... And instead, they look forward to the day when they can place the Jewish Messiah rightfully on David's throne in Jerusalem. So, why are these two getting together? Because they're uniting against Jesus. And here we are, setting up the stage, finding Jesus where? In the temple of the great I am, in the temple of God, when God Himself in the flesh is in that temple. And someone steps forward. And asked Jesus a question. And the question's a good question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? I think I all know how we would like to answer that question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But we hear in Matthew's gospel that this question is not sincerely asked, but it's asked, quote, "...because the Pharisees went and they plotted how to entangle him in his words." So the question, should we pay taxes, it actually has a lot of implications. A lot more than just simply, can I save some money and keep it to myself? Because less than 100 years earlier, before the Romans conquered Judea, the Israelites were briefly an independent nation. They were ruled by the Maccabeans. And many Israelites in Jesus' time, they yearned for that independence. They scorned the Roman invaders as oppressors, along with the Jews who are supporting this puppet king, Herod, and those traitorous Jews who serve as tax collectors for the Romans? Tax collectors, by the way, like St. Matthew, who's written our gospel today. These tax collectors, like Zacchaeus before his repentance, they exhorted high taxes upon the people of God, and they pocketed the excess to enrich themselves. And the Jewish people, they dream of being independent again, being free again, being under God alone. And they thought back to the time before they were conquered, before the Romans came, before the Babylonians, before the Assyrians, to the time in which Israel was united under good King David. And the Pharisees and the other devout Jews, they rest on that promise of the future messianic king who is coming, who will deliver us from the pagans, that Messiah Who will fulfill the promises of the Psalms and elsewhere in the prophets. That the Gentile kings, they are the ones who will submit and bow down to King David's promised son. But before you start to think, hey, maybe the Pharisees are backing Jesus as Messiah. Remember, their motivation is to entangle Jesus. And ironically, although they want to entangle him, they're trying to set him up. They're trying to trap him. They want him to sound like and to appear like a Messiah. Because if they do so, they can trap him. They can bring him forward and say, ah, look, this is a messiah. He's causing rebellion. He's telling us to not pay taxes. What does that mean? Well, in the world of the Roman Empire, a tax rebellion will get you crucifixion. They want him to sound like a messiah so they can have him out of the way. And this is why the Pharisees partner with the Herodians. If you remember, in Matthew's Gospel, it says that the Pharisees plot on the entangling, and they invite the Herodians, unlikely friends, come and join us. Join us in the temple. We're going down to talk to this Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth. Let's see what he says. We'll ask him the question, should we pay taxes or not? The Herodians are coming along. They're curious, because they want to see does Jesus say, don't pay taxes, which will quickly get Jesus drawn before a tribunal and executed? Or is he going to say, pay the taxes? And then the Pharisees are going to say, he's not really a king. He's not really the Messiah. He's supporting the Roman tax. He's su- supporting submission to Rome. So you see that's a clever trap, a simple question they're devising here. Does Jesus, the possible Messiah, the claimant to King David's throne, say, yes, pay the tax and submit to Rome? And therefore, he's not the king of Israel. But if Jesus answers that the tax must be paid, it draws not only the eyes of the Pharisees, but also the majority of the Jewish people, those who are worshiping and watching this question, this discussion, this inquisition there in temple. Should Jesus say, no, you must refuse to pay the Roman tax, he's going to infuriate the Herodians. He's going to infuriate Rome. He's going to appear as a revolutionary inciting a tax rebellion. It would be an instant death sentence. And it would likely lead to many of the Jews watching Jesus to take up arms, to immediately proclaim him a sign, say, yes, don't pay the taxes to Rome. This is the king we've been waiting for. This is what we've been looking forward to. Let's go out and start a rebellion. Because you've got to remember Just one chapter ago, in Matthew 21, Jesus triumphantly entered into Jerusalem with shouts of him from the people of God, saying that he is the son of David and therefore heir to the throne. So if Jesus says, don't pay the taxes, very likely revolution would begin. A bloodbath would ensue. And before Jesus' time and after his resurrection and ascension, history records that there were rebellions and much bloodshed, much violence as the Jewish people unsuccessfully sought their independence from Rome, but we're not dealing today with a mere mortal, are we? The man that the Pharisees are questioning, the man that the Herodians are listening carefully to to catch him, the one they're awaiting that response from, is God in the flesh. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. He's Jesus. He's within his very own temple. The very temple that he himself commanded Solomon to build. And today's gospel records Jesus fulfilling those Old Testament promises that God would visit his people in a way so close that they never even expected it. Coming so close, becoming one of them. Coming into his very own temple and teaching them all throughout Matthew 21 and Matthew 22. And being fully God and being fully man. Verse 18 records that Jesus, quote, is aware of their malice. He knows their hearts as he knows each one of our own hearts. He knows why they're asking this question. And Jesus calls them out and he says, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? And then Jesus does something very clever. Did you see this? He doesn't have a coin on him. Instead, he asks, show me the coin for the tax. And either a Herodian, who has compromised the Romans, or a Pharisee, who doesn't want to pay the tax, ironically, is producing a Roman coin, a denarius. And Jesus turns the question on its head, and he asks, whose likeness, whose image, and notice this word too, inscription is on it. And they answer, why, it's Caesar's. Yes, it is Caesar's image. And the Caesar of that time is Tiberius. But Jesus also asked about the inscription. And this isn't recorded in Scripture, but we know from archaeology we have plenty of denarii that have survived this time from the time of Jesus there in ancient Judea. And it bears the image of one side of Caesar Tiberius. And it bears an inscription that says Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of divine Augustus. In other words, Caesar Tiberius is claiming to be a son of God. Sounds familiar. Moreover, on the other side of the coin is the following title, Pontiff Maxim, or Supreme Pontiff. And in case you don't know, Pontiff is a religious priest in Roman paganism. At this time, when the Caesars come about, they merge the office Of Caesar was supreme pontiff. So therefore, Caesar is claiming to be the great high priest of their false religion. In other words, Caesar is claiming to be the great high priest king over the worship of the demons. But we enter back into verse 21 with the true king of kings, the true great high priest, Jesus looking down at Caesar's coin, and Jesus answers the question. Give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And to God, the things that are God. And both parties, the Herodians and the Pharisees alike, they marvel at Jesus' insight and his response. And they leave without another word. Christian, do you understand what just happened? We see that Jesus does not object to paying the tax. But it's not because he's not the true king. And nor does he bless the oppression of Rome against his people. No, Jesus is telling us that where man-made duty, respect, and submission is due, then render it. But the far more powerful and the greater question for us today and for all eternity, O church, is what belongs to God? What belongs to God? And what should we be rendering to God? But I'm afraid far too often we hear this and we say, yes, yes, we need to pay our taxes. It's a shame. But when the kingdom comes, there'll be no more taxes. And yet we are fools because we don't realize that the real meaning, the real lesson being taught to us is that God wants all because he made all of us. Although Caesar can cast his image and his false pronouncements of being some sort of great high priest and king, Thereupon this piece of metal, this denarius, by giving Caesar back that denarius that he stamps upon the metal, it doesn't acknowledge any truth to his lies. The question that we need to ask is what image, what inscription do we bear on our hearts, in our minds, in our souls, in our lives? Look in the mirror. Look in the mirror, my friend. Listen to the words of Genesis 1, 26. When the Word of God, the same Word of God, who in the temple in Matthew 22 spoke and said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. In verse 27, So man, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And sadly, we live in such confusing times that even this truth of how God created us, of who God created us to be, has been lost. But we image bearers of God, we, filled by the Spirit of God, are called to speak up, O church, and to speak the truth in love. Because, as Paul tells us, you are not your own. St. Paul reminds us this when he talks to the Corinthians church in 1 Corinthians 6.19. You are not your own. We are broken mirrors. We are not perfect. But we broken mirrors still bear the image of our creator. And let us not forget that our creator has come down and he has healed us. For as Paul continues, for you were bought with a price. You were bought with a price. We didn't redeem ourselves. We didn't buy ourselves back from Satan. We didn't cleanse ourselves of our own sins. Christ bought us with the price of his very own blood. And he did so to repair us, to refine us, to renew us broken mirrors, so that now we are called to reflect the image of Christ Jesus himself, who bears the image and reflects the image of God, the Father, the living God. Let us never forget, O church, that Christ bled, Christ suffered, Christ died, and Christ rose again to make you, all of you, his own. You were once far off and hostile. We all were once Gentiles in the faith, and now he has drawn us near and called us who were not a people, his people. So there is nothing that does not belong to our Father. Your time Your talents, your treasures, it all belongs to God. And we are called to use it to serve and to glorify Him. To serve and extend His kingdom by serving and loving our neighbors. And before you get into that temptation, as we all do, of of starting to compare our time, we have so little, of our talents. I'm really not that talented. Of our treasures, let's not even go there, lack thereof before we start to compare that and the lack thereof with our neighbors, or how our neighbors don't use theirs the way they should, so that should excuse us from, from being proactive. And before we do that, church, remember that Christ did not simply come to save us. He saved us to send us out into his world as his servants. And do you really think that our Lord, that our God, that our Savior, Jesus Christ, who loved us so much to come and die and bleed for us, would not also equip us? He equips us well. He equips us with the full presence of his Holy Spirit. And he promises to bear fruit through us by God the Holy Spirit. His victory upon the cross, his victory over death through his resurrection, is made manifest through us by his Holy Spirit living within us. And through the Holy Spirit. The body of Jesus, his church, shall advance upon even the gates of hell and shall overcome them. Amen. Do you believe that, O oh, church? It's not an inspirational quote. It's not a motivational poster to be tacked upon a wall. It's a life to be lived. It's a calling for us to fulfill. It's something for us to walk in. Or St. Paul says yet again to those pesty Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, do you not know That your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. It's a beautiful irony that the same God who today visits his temple demands complete and whole submission to the same holy God who now turns his temple into us by filling us with his Spirit. Though we are weak, he is strong. So glorify your body, Paul concludes, by how you speak, by how you serve, by how you tell the broken, confused, and dark world that God so loved the world that he sent his only son to suffer for us broken images, to redeem us into servants, bearing the image of the true king who shall return. You have a calling, O church. You have a calling. Because there's no part timers in the kingdom of God. There's no room for serving two masters the world, the flesh, the devil, and God added in there as well. Those who are putting one hand on the plow and who keep looking backwards need not apply. God has laid out his ministry and his mission upon you, upon you. So, church, do not resist the Holy Spirit. And how I know he is right now drawing you, so many of you, to give yourself up completely over to him. To, as the psalm tells us, to truly be still and know that he is God. For when we get out of God's way, he fills us up with himself. And we're compelled to follow him. To be a disciple, faithful on this journey that he is taking you and taking us together as the church. Because this afternoon, starting at lunch, tomorrow at work, while picking up groceries, or maybe even filling up your car at the gas station, God is going to put people in your path. And God's already been doing it for some time now. People that you've seen over and over. And you get that inkling. You have that push that's not from yourself, not from your soul, not from your mind or your heart, but that push of the Holy Spirit. Go speak to them. Serve them. Pray for them. Love them. Church, serve them. and Tell them what Jesus has done for you and what he is willing to do for them. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.